Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined by Nizar Hassan as always. Nizar, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, we've got a whole lot to talk about today and we've got a special guest as well. Yes, it's a great comrade of, of mine, Islam Khatib, a Palestinian organizer and um, who is very involved in the feminist circles as well and also teaches Islamic philosophy and probably one of the smartest people who are in their early 20s in Lebanon. Welcome to the show, Islam. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, and of course, today we're going to be talking about one. Uh, there, there were two like really big events that happened this week. One of those was that there were just tons of Palestinians who went out into the streets to protest. There's a general strike going on. It's all because of this uh, labor crackdown that's going on right now. And so Islam is here to uh, uh, talk about that with us. That's going to be our main topic, which we'll get to in a minute. But before then, the other main topic, uh, the the other main story of this week was, of course, the budget uh, <laughs> Uh, and I think this has lately become my favorite topic, so it's unfortunate that this is sort of over at this point. But it is. It's, it's uh, finally on Friday, Parliament endorsed uh, the 2019 state budget. They passed it 83 to 17 to 1, uh, one abstention. And this came after several days of basically speeches, uh, not, not really too much debate, but just like, MP after MP getting up uh, from Tuesday through Wednesday, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, giving speeches and basically saying like, I think a lot of them were basically shitting on the budget, but a lot of them voted for it anyway. So it's only, you know, we're only six or seven months late on this. And of course, that means that it's already time to start with the 2020 budget. So I can't be too sad that it's over with because the 2020 budget uh, has to be submitted to cabinet by September 1st. So theoretically, <laughs> we'll get to do all of this stuff in like a couple You're of months. You're looking uh, forward, aren't you? <laughs> uh, uh, oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, like every time we do the budget, because we didn't have a budget for so long, I'd like I learn so much more. And so I feel like every time that I cover this, I cover it better. And it, 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 that makes sense because it's such a huge document. Anyway, though, this week there were there were also a lot of strikes and protests that were going on during the meetings. Uh, you know, separate from the Palestinian protests, there there were um, some public employees that went on strike, uh, and veterans held uh, really major protests uh, down in Martyr Square. They even tried to storm the parliament as voting began on Friday. But at, at the end of the day, that you know they weren't successful in storming the parliament, and it, I think a, a, a big question remains as to how successful they were in negotiations as well. So, so what was done? We we don't know everything yet. Uh, but uh, like I said, the the veterans were trying to to argue against and protest against this uh, this tax on their pensions, and, and and so we know something about that. I'm I'm still a little bit unclear. We're, we're recording this literally on Saturday, so the budget was passed less than 24 hours ago. Elias Musab, the defense minister, came out and said, uh, "Don't worry, those who retired from the military um, under the rank of colonel will only pay like two dollars." A month or something like that, but I, I'm still not quite clear on whether this is the entirety of the measure or if there's some other stuff as well attached. So we're going to have to wait and see the actual, you know, text of it uh, to know exactly what happened here. Also, apparently there is a three percent tax on imports, uh, which is up from the two percent that we thought it was going to be. But apparently MPs included some exemptions for gasoline very important, and for goods that are already exempted under the value-added tax. So, uh, you know, basic necessities. Also, the Council for Development and Reconstruction's uh, uh, project budget was reportedly slashed by like $50 million. There's a big fight over over Ogero's budget as well. Um, and, and so th this ends up being kind of sectarian here because 
people saw like this as sort of an attack on the CDR and on Ogero and also uh, on the Higher Relief Council. Um, and all of these, all three of these bodies are sort of seen as like the Sunni's share of the state pie. Uh <laughs> And, uh, and, and, and so like when they were talking about it, you know, like Hariri actually like grew frustrated. He left the session at a certain point and, and uh, that led Berri, uh, Nabi Berri, the speaker of parliament to call a short break. Uh, Najib Ati, the former prime minister, uh, like basically the number two Sunni in the country, uh, if you will, uh, after Hariri, he withdrew from the session and, and he said it like specifically in a tweet. He said like over the targeting of these three institutions. So th that was a really big fight. And it was unfortunate that, that also took on those, you know, sectarian dimensions. But it's, it's good to mention that the origin of the critiques against CDR, the, the Council for Development and Reconstruction and the High Relief Council is that they are institutions that spend a lot of money without being accountable. And this is why a lot of people who, you know, call for reforms in the state administration say at least they should be, there should be accountability mechanisms to make sure that they are spending the money in the right place, etc. Absolutely. And, and we still have to see exactly what those there were. There were several accountability mechanisms that were uh, proposed by the uh, by the, the finance committee. And we don't know exactly. I, I have not been able to find out yet uh, which of those have been actually made it through the, the full General Assembly of Parliament and which ones were discarded on the on the floor of the House. So, uh, it's uh, you know, it's good. We've, we've got the budget passed and everything's peachy, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, not not really. Um, first off, we've got the question of maybe there will be a constitutional challenge. And, and this stems primarily from the fact that Parliament decided not to pass the closure of accounts uh, for 2017. Well, they couldn't actually because cabinet hasn't passed it on to them. And so this is a violation of the Constitution. And, and also there there could be, you know, other grounds for appeal as well. One other big concern is that there are still these huge doubts. The numbers in the budget, they they don't match reality. Yeah. And and this was actually brought into pretty sharp relief this week, this past week, because Riyad Slimi, the governor of BDL, the central bank, came out on Wednesday and he said, BDL is not going to subscribe to treasury bills at 1% interest. The banks have already said this. They, they're, they're not going to do this either. But this was built into the budget numbers, and it, it's supposedly a, a savings of $700 million. Over 1% of GDP is built into the numbers that Parliament passed. And, and so Parliament passed, really, it was, I mean, definitely fictitious numbers. On, on, on this thing alone, it's, it's a really, really big deal. Uh, so, I mean, I mean we'll, we'll see what what happens we'll see uh how like the the cedra donors react if they really believe that this is you know really as austerity you know and and budget slashing as they want to see because that, that's that's what they would like to see and it was it was very it was very funny the salim saadi comments that he made in during one of the sessions uh ssmp mp for kura who is known for saying like too honest or a bit ridiculous things anyway so he said that the imf or International donors know that we are lying to them about the budget and the deficit. And we know that they know that we are lying to them about the deficit reduction. So it's all fine. It's all good. And everybody laughed. Uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, like, we, we, we laughed. gave a high five to whoever was on his left. It was really funny. Yeah. So I mean, we, we will see how, you know, the, the donors react to this. Uh, but 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 for me, I, I think that's sort of beside the point, because really the the 
the whole idea here is regardless of whether you're getting any money from the international community or not, like Lebanon's finances need to be fixed uh, ASAP in one way or another. Uh, <laughs> and, and really, so Lebanon's left with no choice other than to figure something out here, regardless of whatever the international community says. Uh, it, it, to me, the, the stick is bigger than the carrot. All right. So speaking of numbers, uh, <laughs> speaking of... <laughs> it's a very Benjamin Red transition, yeah. <laughs> of, of what we know, uh, we, we actually got numbers for the first four months of the year, how much the Ministry of Finance has been spending, right? So that, that's one of the big questions is the budget match up with reality. We got a taste of that reality. So for the first four months of this year, the finance ministry said that there was a deficit of $1.38 billion. Um, and, and that's actually much lower than last year's. Uh, last year, during the same period, uh, the Lebanese government spent $1.91 billion. So if this pace keeps up, it would put the 2019 deficit at around $4.5 billion, which is about 7.7% of GDP, which is pretty damn close to what cabinet said was going to be their target of 7.6% of GDP. It's almost magically close. Uh, but here's the thing. So two things could affect that. And, and these go in sort of opposite directions. Number one, new measures from the 2019 budget should reduce spending and increase revenues. So this should push that 7.7% of GDP percent, uh, so this should push so this should push that 7.7% number lower but there's rumors that the ministry of finance isn't really cutting spending so much but like putting off paying for things so maybe they should have spent a little bit more during those first four months but they put off the payment so we're still going to have to pay it anyway um and if this is the case then that's going to push the 7.7 .7 number higher. Now, which of these is going to have the larger effect? No one really knows except maybe some, you know, wonks at the Ministry of Finance. Uh, but I, I strongly suspect that the latter is going to be the bigger influence. It, uh, and, and, and I think, you know, the IMF also agrees, like we're not going to see a 7 uh, or 8 percent deficit uh, uh, in, in terms of, of GDP. It's going to be higher than that 9, 10 uh, in, in that area from what it seems right now. One really quick side note on this. Uh, you might remember Riyad Saleme, the governor of BDL, telling all of us just a month ago that the January to April budget was less than a billion. So what the fuck? Uh, uh, well, uh, Dan Azzi, friend of the show, and and Alia Mubayad, uh, who's an economist, suggested that this uh, may have been, you know, he may have been using accounting that was based, that was cash-based, just cash flow-based. And meaning basically that if the Ministry of Finance was supposed to pay you but didn't yet, uh, they didn't count it in the deficit. Um, of course, this if they, if this is the uh, the case, then this calls two things into question. Number one, the Ministry of Finance numbers that were released this past week, and number two, the credibility of the governor of Banque du Liban. Uh, you, you can't have a governor coming out and saying, "Oh, it's less than a billion," and then less than a month later have a number that is much larger than that 1.3 billion that's ridiculous and one one final note on bdl during the sessions of parliament this week at one point Ruri sort of got into an, a bit of an argument and he said that the imf wants to float the lebanese pound Whoa! yeah this finally Finally, someone of this kind of caliber said it. I mean, it was obvious from the reports, but they were never actually saying it very explicitly. Yeah, so so this is a really, really big deal, and it, and it would be a big deal if, if, this, uh, if this came to pass. Um, yeah, basically makes all of us poorer. Right. Much poorer. Yeah, it's the, it would be the end of like the Lebanese economic system as we know it. 
or maybe the the worst kind of extension for it. Anyway, we'll we'll discuss this later. But yeah, that's a whole other case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there 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 are reasons that it should be devalued for sure. But anyway, so that's it on the budget. Um, very quickly, I do want to note uh, two quick things. Uh, Nawaf uh, Musawi, who is an MP for Tyre for Hezbollah, submitted his res- uh, his resignation on Thursday, and he's been involved in in a couple of incidents this year. So back in February, you probably remember this. We talked about it on the show. Uh, Musawi got in a verbal argument in Parliament with Nadim Jumail, uh, and and he ended up making some uh, perhaps true but intemperate comments about Nadim's dad, Bashir Jumail, and and that got him into a lot of hot water. Uh, Hezbollah suspended him from his duties as an MP for a period of two months. Uh, and, and then just uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, he was involved in this sort of strange incident involving his daughter. She was, she was forced off the road by her ex-husband, uh, apparently over a custody issue. And there's this uh, video that went viral about this. And then, and then both were taken into the Damur police station. Musawi, the MP, showed up with about 20 armed men. Um, and there are allegations that the ex-husband was stabbed with a screwdriver at one point and somebody shot at the police station as well. Um, Musawi uh, denied this, but uh, actually just last Friday uh, after Musawi uh, resigned, uh, the military prosecutor brought charges against him for um, his alleged uh, involvement in this incident. Uh, so, so Musawi has had a lot of things going on. Regardless, I think this is kind of sad. He's generally, you know, regarded as a as, as a pretty good lawmaker, knows what he's doing, knows what he's talking about. And as far as I know, he was one of the few MPs who is supportive of the amendment to the uh, domestic violence law to make it more clearly um, protective of women. So on that end, a lot of organizations are saying now, like, he was an ally and, uh, you know, it's sad to, to lose the only ally in the Hezbollah MP, in the Hezbollah bloc. Uh, and, and the other thing, of course, that we have to note here uh, is that cabinet is still suspended. Its work is still suspended uh, due to the Kabrshmoon incident. As of today, Monday, it has been 20 days. So oh, here we tried. go again. You're counting days. <laughs> Back, well, well, it's a situation where you have to start counting the days again because Jesus fucking Christ, we're going into the fourth week here uh, of, of this true, issue. True. Uh, it's been... As of Monday, 20 days since cabinet tried and failed to meet on July 2nd. Uh, so in, in this past week, everything sort of fell apart again. Abbas Ibrahim, who's the head of general security and sort of the all around big negotiator guy. He was put on the he was put on the case and he brought a proposal to Talal Erslan to uh, send to refer this to the military tribunal. Erslan just shut it down and said, nope, I want it at the Judicial Council. So, I, I mean, Hariri said last week that um, that, that this coming week we're going to have, he's going to call a, a cabinet session, but that was before everything sort of collapsed. So really, we're we're no closer uh, to any sort of solution than we were a week ago. All right. And, and on that, I think we should move to that other really big story that happened this week, and that's the Palestinian protests. So first of all, I think we live in two different countries. I have, I have no clue about the budget. I've been so detached. Anyway, <laughs> so basically today is the fifth day since the Palestinian protests have as started. Of, as of Saturday. As of Saturday, right. Basically, what happened is that the Ministry of Labor has decided to include in its crackdown on foreign Workers, Palestinian workers, which which has driven everyone out of their houses into the streets in every Palestinian camp. There's a general strike. People have decided not to buy any Lebanese products. So 
things are a bit messy right now and that's because of the basically an old law but new measures that mean that any Palestinian that is working must have a work permit which makes no sense because to have a work permit you have to go through a very complicated administrative and legal process which doesn't make sense for for Palestinians that have been living in Lebanon for the past 71 years and because there are certain documents you have to present to get your work permit such as residency papers so what's been going on is that the minister Abu Sulaiman has said that this campaign is not against Palestinians and it's only to organize like migrant or foreign and what he called as illegal migrant you know workers in Lebanon which and and to be fair he has been cracking down on on, on a lot of people and not just Palestinians you like so so what was it like a, a month and a half ago or so he announced yeah. there was going to be a crackdown gave a month long get your get your papers in order everybody then I'm going to start cracking down yeah. and then on uh, I think July 10th he started to do that and it was it started out like I guess not not really in uh, Palestinians, certainly not in the camps, right? Exactly. So it, it did not really start in the camp. I mean, the first company that was closed was in Shikka, and it was a ceramic company. So basically, like, investigators from the Ministry of Labor passed by and asked the owner of the company, hey, show us your work permit. So we are talking about probably a person who has, like, thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, and they're asking him for a work permit. So what happened next is that they entered entered some camps in Saida, specifically in Hilwe, and then they went to Myumi um, camp. And what they said basically that all Palestinian workers or owners of shops, and here I have to specify between shops and companies because you cannot have a company inside the camp or outside the campus. It's, it's much easier to have one outside the camp. Um, we'll talk about the camps in a minute, but yeah. to understand what's happening now, well, what is what are the labor inspectors basically checking for in these companies? What are they doing? So basically, they're asking every single worker to show, and the employers, of course, to show that the workers have work permits. This basically is in relation to the laws that were amended in 2010, the Article 9 and the Social Security Law, which basically exempted Palestinians from the principle of reciprocity because the, obviously there's no legal state of Palestine, etc. What happened then was basically all Palestinians can work but cannot like benefit from the social security law even though they are included in it and have to pay like their employers have to pay like two percent of the employees like wage even though these amend amendments were like declared and everyone celebrated them they were not put into action up until now because the minister is saying that although palestinians have to you know have to have work permits we're also giving them these privileges these privileges are basically that you can have work permit at no cost and you can, you know, change it annually. So basically what people are saying is that, okay, if we have to have work permit, how do we get a work permit? What are the certain documents that we need to prove in order to get a work permit? And this is what we're asking for now. And there is no clear answer for that. There is no clear answer because the, the law that is in place does not take the specificity of Palestinian refugees into consideration. If you're going to ask a, res- a residency, then we cannot have a work permit. So people are asking, and okay, why is that? Because you cannot, we cannot have to, like we've been, refugees have been living here for 71 years, so we cannot, we don't have any sort of 
document that states we are residents, we are only refugees, we are considered stateless. And also there is no definition, clear legal definition of Palestinians in Lebanon. So they're divided into three categories, those who are registered with UNRWA, those who are registered with the state and the non-IDs. So basically it's all a mess, a complicated mess, and there haven't been any clear answers, just like actions. And that's what's basically frustrating everyone. Basically, Palestinians have a six-month extension to work on their papers, and that comes after negotiations with the PLO, which sent Azam al-Ahmad to Lebanon a few, few days ago. He is the ex-minister of labor in the PLO, and he's also now in like, you know... He's on the executive committee, right? And he, he was sent here by Mahmoud Abbas this this past week, right? Yeah. To be sort of like the, okay, go take care of that situation yeah. type, type of thing, yeah. yeah. And his statement was that, you know, the Palestinian-Lebanese relationships cannot be affected by details. So he basically said that the livelihood of Palestinians here is basically another, you know, detail. Um, So what is going on right now is that when they closed down certain shops and certain employees were kicked out of their work because they are Palestinian, people have, you know, taken down the streets. They start protesting in all camps. The protests are still ongoing. And... um, here comes the role of like people are trying to ask what do we do now and how do we deal with that and that this answer has been you know this question has not been answered until now and that's mostly related to basically what the ministry of labor is trying to do is basically include every foreign laborer in lebanon in the law and then forgetting the specificity of Palestinians. Trying to include you as foreign labor, yeah. not taking into account that, well, you, you don't have, like, you can't possibly be considered in that category for a number of reasons that he should really know. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, I mean, to, I mean, it sounds obvious, but first of all, if you're a refugee, you cannot be treated the same way as an economic migrant, especially if you are uh, deprived of the right to return to your land. If you are a refugee and you have inherited the refugee status from a previous generation, this just doesn't make any sense at all to be born a refugee and to live your whole life stuck in a country being a refugee. And then to be asked to have a work permit is just absolutely insane from like a basic perspective without even going into the details of the law. And, and so like when Abu Suleiman, like, for instance, he came out this past week and he said, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it easier to get work permits. And one of the things that he did was say that uh, I, I think it was employers don't have to pay the NSSF contributions or whatever. You're saying that doesn't fucking matter because that, 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 that's yeah, yeah. really beside the point. Exactly. And it's not only that, that also depends on like the goodwill of the employers. And we all know that, you know, refugees are basically exploited by everyone here. So basically, it doesn't make any sense. And most of Palestinians actually work in informal sectors, sectors that are not, you know, companies that are not even registered or legal in that sense. So how can a company that, for example, is not really registered, even if it's Lebanese, you know, go and apply for work permits? If you get the permit, you can get the privileges. And we cannot get the permit, so that's because you don't have the documents. Yeah, that's what's been going on. So even a six month, even even if this is true that you've got six months to get all of your documents in order, you don't have the documents to get in order. So how do you possibly do this? Exactly, exactly. And to I mean, yeah, people can get a work permit if you edit like if you say what kind of documents that Palestinians in specific should apply to get a work permit. But also, given yeah, we have to take into consideration that most Palestinians work in informal sectors so how does that add or play yeah exactly i mean this is something that comes to mind i mean the most informal sectors in the economy are the ones where uh, palestinian uh, the palestinian labor force is most concentrated so 
the labor ministry is already not even doing a, a, its job and in inspecting the conditions of of whatever work in agriculture or work in most of the informal sectors so why do we expect palestinian labor to be that organized when no other labor or whatever nationality in these sectors is organized at all it's all based on informal labor it's all based a lot of it is based also as you were telling me before we started recording on doing like different kind of jobs every every day or every month or whatever manual labor that can be put in place in completely different things like today i'm working in an agricultural field another day i'm working in a shop another day i'm working to trans and transport or whatever all of these things or construction all of these things are based on this informal and very precarious very exploitative kind of labor and the lebanese labor law doesn't even cover these people so it doesn't organize them in the first place so it's a bit strange that uh, the ministry is expecting the Palestinian labor will be organized through this kind of crackdown okay so I, I think that we need to sort of step back here for a minute because one of the big questions that I have right is just why the proportionality and, and even even Camille Abu Suleiman said this week in perhaps an ill-considered comment he said that the Palestinian reaction is incomprehensible and nonsensical, which means as a minister, you should probably talk to the Palestinians and figure out why they're doing this. But see, I, me personally, I also don't know. To me, it seems as though, you know, Palestinians have been mistreated for so many years in Lebanon. So why now? Why suddenly now? Is, is, is this just like the straw that breaks the camel's back or is there some other reason? My indication from you from what we talked about before we started recording is that you have to go back a little bit and talk about the history of this, right? You know, I personally believe that whatever is happening and what will happen in the next few years to the Palestinian co community in Lebanon has like strong roots in how the camps were formed and how the community itself were formed. So basically, when people arrived in 1947 and 1948, um, what happened is that, you know, usually when there's war, you know, in the neighborhood country, the camps are usually near the borders. I mean, Palestinian camps are not. Palestinians were actually brought into the cities because, you know, businesses and companies were prospering back then. The economy was not like this. And, you know, people needed workers. And most of the refugees that came into Lebanon were actually farmers or peasants. And that was why um, some of them were hosted in Beirut and not all of them were in the south. And at some point in 1949, Michel Shiha basically said that, okay, we can put like certain refugees who have certain skills in certain cities, but we can ha we have to get rid of a certain number and send them back to Syria. Or maybe they can be, you know, divided between Syria, Jordan, Gaza, which then was basically the thing, was basically like send the refugees back to their places or send them away or maybe another host country can, you know, have them. So what happened then basically was some refugees were sent back to you know Syria but Syria closed the borders on Palestinians back then and then Palestinians were taken back so what happened is that they also formed the new camps so there were around 15 camps back then now we all have only 12 Palestinians sort of started you know to work farms and companies you know different sectors different places and 
up until like 2010, they w- there weren't any mentioning, like any legal mentioning of Palestinian refugees, even though they were working for decades. So the, they were considered just as any other foreign worker. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. They were seen as, and I mean, we're talking about like the 40s and then the 50s and 60s. The migrant community was not that strong in Lebanon as it is now. The exactly. Kabbalah system wasn't there yet. Obviously, people had problems, but at the same time, they were exploit exploiting the refugees. So it wasn't that much of a, of a thing up until like the 60s and then you have when businesses start were started by Palestinians who were coming from you know Quds or coming from Hebron and then hiring Palestinians here and people were like you know the economy was prospering even for Palestinians so what happened next was the crisis that we all know as the bank entra crisis and basically that led to banning Palestinians from certain, you know... The they certain are banned from yeah. a bunch of, like, 70 professions that are ex- exclusively for yeah. Lebanese. That actually started back then, and including starting their own organizations, including civil organizations, which was very interesting because there weren't many. Anyway, so... People were starting to, you know, wonder what happens next. How do we deal with this next? How do we, how do we move on after, you know, the crisis? Because what happened is that the crisis made many Palestinians lose lose their jobs and also their money. A lot of the time, people forget that part of history because a lot of our families, you know, were, you know, had to so- sell their homes and had to sell everything they have because of the crisis. So they moved back to the camps. A lot of Palestinians, you know how we have like the informal camps. We have like in Wadi Zayne, for example, you know, cities like that where Palestinians gathered after they got out of the camps. So they were pushed back into the camps. And that's very interesting because a lot of our history is basically the authorities or I don't know, I just, I'm just going to call it structures of power, trying to push Palestinians back into their quote-unquote private sphere and just to ignore the fact that they're existing, you know, just invisibilize. So that's what happened then. And that's what Interbank was all about, right? Interbank was this humongous, gigantic bank back in the 60s uh, that was, you know, it was basically when Beirut was the destination for a lot of Gulf capital. Uh, a lot of petrodollars were coming into Beirut and it was sort of like the way station between, you know, the Gulf and the West. Um, but this bank was owned by a Palestinian. <laughs> and, uh, and and there, I mean, there's there's too much to get into in here. But basically, there was this just collective failure or perhaps even, you know, something more sinister happening there where the banking sector and the powers that be in Lebanon basically decided we're going to let this bank fail or we're going to make it fail. And it caused, I mean, it was a disaster on every possible level. It was a disaster for the Palestinians, most of all, as you're talking about, but it was also just a disaster for the Lebanese and the Lebanese banking sector because you think that Gulf money came back? No, of course not. So basically what we're trying to say here is that, you know, through all of these different milestones and, and through the measures and the tensions that have happened, the Palestinians have been forced more into the camps, more into their uh, little informal economies that uh, in which they operate. And throughout the, the recent history, the modern history of Lebanon, we see many stages where this is very le- relevant uh, in the civil war and uh, after the civil war in Nahr al-Barid and uh, then war on Nahr al-Barid camp in 2007. And even very recently, actually, last year, we saw the UNRWA cuts 
where the U.S. administration said that it's withdrawing its contribution to UNRWA, which is the, maybe the largest employer of Palestinians in Lebanon and uh, the main supporter of most kind of activities within camps that are humanitarian activities within camps. So the cuts to the UNRWA funds was a very big blow as well to Palestinians. So Palestinians, basic Palestinian workers in Lebanon are stuck within the camps, stuck in low-wage jobs, banned from uh, prospering in the national economy and and now you have the labor minister going in even to that very last place where you can work and saying, oh, we're going to crack down here too. Exactly. And on that point, I think it's important to to not to look at the labor minister as a technocrat at all in this situation because he represents the Lebanese forces, right? And the Lebanese forces are competing with a Christian, another the other Christian political party that has adopted a very right-wing a rhetoric that scapegoats refugees and here and they've been shutting down shops too they launched uh, <laughs> another campaign you know just a couple of months ago and so it, it seems like there's this sort of competition going on between the two uh, main christian forces in the country so basically maybe the, we can portray it caricatural way as like maybe Basile is succeeding too much in being Lebanon's Donald Trump so the LF wants to take away some of it uh, uh, some of his momentum before he completely <laughs> dominates Christian politics through this right-wing rhetoric so as you basically said um, Palestinians have been like the political you know arena for like several factions not only like Lebanese and also Palestinian but what's going on right now is basically a historical moment, I think. I think we've all been waiting for this. You know, people are actually on, you know, on the streets just with a political discourse, a very clear political discourse. And it's not just like about, hey, please give us our rights or whatever. No, it's actually like, hey, we've been here for 71 years and we've been dealing with this and this and this. And it's not only targeted, you know, at the Lebanese authorities, it's also like, having this kind of conversations that we've been trying to have for the past five years I think I've been you know I remember like back in 2015 it wasn't this clear and it wasn't this angry and uh, now there's this anger and I think people are sort of you know thinking of how to also you know co-organize with other you know communities that are also under attack including like Syrian communities and also migrant communities and then we also have the Lebanese communities and here is where we think of how we can move forward with this and with it not being just restricted to the camps because I guess this is what everyone in power wants they want everyone to be back in the private Palestinian sphere instead of being in the public Lebanese sphere where you know you can have you can actually be visible and not just invisibilized as is the history of Palestinians in Lebanon and I completely agree that the the Lebanese Palestinian division has never been clearer to me than the last few days right the Lebanese sharing all kind of fake news propaganda whatever about Palestinian protesters doing these outrageous things like burning tires which Lebanese protesters do every single day and then like all the all the, basically all the tensions that is are being kind of manufactured in a systematic way even if they happen spontaneously but they are spreading really fast and this is very concerning to me as someone who uh, at least uh, virtually has been has been you know reading and, and involved in our history and our history of civil war and pre-civil war history where basically the same rhetoric uh, was so advanced and so established that it 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 provided the ground for a very very deadly phase of our history so everyone is worried now with the economic collapse that might happen that 
you know, social tensions will eventually rise and people will be killing each other or whatever uh, chaos will be happening. So with this new dimension, it brought a lot of fear, a lot of really a lot of trauma back to in the minds of a lot of people, Palestinian and Lebanese, about what's going to happen. And most dangerously to me, it's a blow to our whatever attempts exist to create solidarity. So here, I want to know how you're feeling about this uh, in terms of organizing for the future. Do you you see possibilities for kind of solidarity organizing uh, in Lebanon? And where do you see, what do you see as the most important challenges or priorities for uh, you as Palestinian organizers? So I honestly, yeah, I honestly agree. I'm also terrified, like we're fucking terrified. But also at the same time, I think this is, this is it, you know, there are moments like, I don't know, I'm sure like our grandparents also had that moment when they thought like, yeah, this is it. This is whatever we're going mm-hmm. to do now. I'm not sure. Maybe they- I think this is it in terms of, you know, everyone is on fire right now. So what we have to do right now is go back into our communities. And even if that community is like your neighborhood or I don't know, like our families or like, I don't know, however small that is. I think this is the chance to bring people together because um, the discourse that the Palestinians are providing is really very clear. They are saying, hey, we don't want you know, we don't want to fight. We're not here against the Lebanese. We're not here against the Lebanese state. We are just saying that we, we won't be your scapegoat. And we won't be like, hey, we want to liber- liberate Palestine. And, we, you know, at the same time, you know, just like oppressing every fucking Palestinian living in Lebanon. So basically what they are saying is also very general and it's not really specific. And I think a lot of people can be on board with that kind of discourse. But what I really fear is that people have been very drowned in whatever specific divisions even within whatever I don't know whatever self-proclaimed civil society we have here what they have to do right now is basically use this because I don't think it's going to happen again and I think people are really when I say people I'm just saying going to say structures of power are really trying their best to destroy whatever is going on and if Palestinians together you know how hard it is to connect people from Nahr al-Bayrid and Anan al-Halwi together and this happened if that happened and there's a general strike I think a lot can happen between Lebanon and Palestinian communities and also other communities that are under attack and whatever form that takes it should happen as quickly as possible before we let them once again you know use whatever space we are offering up so I think you know you have to either act now or just like let it go as usual and I will I will add one thing maybe from my perspective to Lebanese people who are talking about this um, who have maybe some sense of solidarity with the Palestinians in terms of uh, human rights but uh, when they start discussing this, they slid, slide immediately to some civil war discourse about Palestinian um, armed presence and uh, and the camps being like dangerous areas for Lebanon, etc. And this is very very dangerous because whenever uh, whenever there's a someone is challenging the status quo, demanding basic rights as workers and as humans there will be someone introducing to the public discourse uh, another aspect that would kind of discredit this by uh, making the conversation about something completely different. And this is about depriving these Palestinian workers who are protesting from their agency as political actors right now and putting it in the hands of armed factions and the Palestinian Authority and the Lebanese state and having the conversations between them rather than on the ground and on the grassroots, as you're saying. So I would say this is kind of a red flag that we should be avoiding. All right. Well, I think we have to leave it there. Thanks so much for uh, for coming and sharing with us. Uh, I, I now understand this topic a lot better than I did <laughs> a couple <laughs> hours ago. 
Well, thank you so much, Islam, for uh, coming on the show. It's been really insightful. I was really happy like, to be invited here. I know like, uh, it's hard to talk about this clearly, but yeah, yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, I think we, we need a few more Palestinian voices yeah. uh, in when we're talking about Lebanese politics. There are, too. there are. You just have to contact them. There are. This is it for this week, then. Uh, we'll come back next week with a new episode. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Assam Khatib, guys. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.